Sometimes telling people the truth is quite painful and sometimes comes at great personal cost. The Oscar award-winning movie Schindler's List is based on Thomas Keneally's international best-selling historical fiction novel, Schindler's Ark. I've not read the book, but in it, Keneally tells the story of Diana Ryder, a Jewish architectural engineer imprisoned in Plazow labor camp in Poland. Diana was working on constructing uh, the SS barracks under the oversight of NCO Albert Hujar. Uh, a section of the foundations of the barracks had collapsed. Some Nazi SS engineer made an excavating blunder. Diana claimed that the foundations hadn't been excavated properly and the project needed to be restarted from scratch. While talking with Hujer, Commandant Ammon Goeth saw Diana conversing and directing and pointing. Ammon could tell from Hujer's face that he had been arguing intensely with Diana, and half smiling, Ammon told Hujer, we're not going to have arguments with these people. Bring me the girl. And Thomas Keneally writes this. She did not know that he hated her the worst, the type who thought, even against the evidence of his SS uniform, of these rising structures, that their Jewishness was not visible. You've had occasion to quarrel with Obersharfuhrer Hujer, Goeth said, uh, told her as a fact. She nodded firmly. The Herr Commandant would understand, the nod suggested, even though that idiot Hujer couldn't. The entire foundations at the end must be redug, she told him energetically. Of course, Ammon knew they were like that. They liked to string out tasks and so ensure that the labor force was safe for the duration of the project. If everything is not redug, she told him, there will be at least subsistence at the southern end of the barracks. There could be collapse. She went on arguing the case, and Ammon nodded and presumed she must be lying. It was a first principle that you never listened to a Jewish specialist. Jewish specialists were in the mold of Marx, whose theories were aimed at the integrity of government, and of Freud, who had assaulted the integrity of the Aryan mind. Ammon felt that this girl's argument threatened his personal integrity. He called Hujer. The NCO returned uneasily. He thought she was going to be told, he was going to be told to take the girl's advice. The girl did too. Shoot her, Ammon told Hujer. There was, of course, a pause while Hujer digested the order. Shoot her, Ammon repeated. Hujer took the girl's elbow to lead her away to some place of private execution. Here, Ammon, uh, said Ammon. Shoot her here on my authority, said Ammon. Hujer knew how it was done. He gripped her by the elbow, pushed her a little to his front, took the Mauser from his holster, and shot her in the back of the neck. Sometimes telling people the truth is quite painful and sometimes comes at great personal cost. For various reasons, people often don't want to hear the truth. Even though they know it deep down, they prefer a different reality. So they refuse God's truth now and feel threatened by those who tell it. But true love tells the truth. There is no true love apart from truth. And yet people often receive truth telling as if it's hate. And that's painful for truth tellers. John Calvin wisely commented, Though it is a common remark that truth begets hatred, yet, except through the malice and wickedness of those who cannot endure to hear it, truth is never hateful. 
Paul's truthful words stung, yet they were not hateful words. Paul deeply desired for Christ to be formed in the Galatians, so he wrote them a love letter, but a love letter very different than ones that we're accustomed to. Here's a point that I'd like to to make from Galatians 4. Inside of true love for someone is a desire to see Christ formed in them and a readiness to tell them the truth for their greatest happiness in God, even at great personal cost. We see true love in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Here's the first point. Saints, you are known by God as beloved adopted children and heirs. Therefore, relentlessly repent of works righteousness. In verses 8 through 10, Paul describes who the Galatians used to be, who they are, and gives an emphatic plea uh, to repent of works righteousness. He said, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. They used to be idolaters, enslaved to the demons behind their idols. They used to be enslaved to the law, ignorant of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't know God. But then Paul says in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Through, through Paul's gospel preaching, the Galatians had come to know God, but there was a better way to express that intimate relationship, rather to be known by God. Paul wants the emphasis on God, not man. You have come to know God, that's the right way to say it, that's true, but it puts the Galatians in the active. Paul wants to accentuate the most significant aspect of salvation, that God is the prime mover and shaker, if you will, in salvation. The most beautiful view of salvation is from the vantage point of a sovereign God knowing us. As Paul taught in other places, God knew his children from before the foundation of the world. He chose them. He predestined them to adoption as sons. To be known by God extols the Father's sovereign and eternal love. So the Galatians knew God because they were known by God. In fact, loved by God before the foundation of the world, before time began. How could they even consider turning back to the law? To borrow from Tevya, love Tevya, from Fiddler on the Roof, he said, unheard of, absurd, unthinkable. That's what this is. From a slave to a son? And then to revert back to being a slave? Paul was pleading, how can you turn back? By weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, I think Paul is talking about Gentile paganism and Jewish legalism because both were elementary and of the world. Paul is not saying that God's law is rubbish. He's saying that trusting the law for justification is as bad as paganism. Because neither worldviews can justify anyone. Paul used the same word back in verse 3. They were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And they were even observing days and months and seasons and years. 
which I think means that along with circumcision, they were returning to Mosaic dietary laws and festivals as means of justification. Calvin commented, to bring back Christianity to Judaism was in itself no light evil, but far more serious mischief was done when, in opposition to the grace of Christ, they set up holidays as meritorious performances and pretended that this mode of worship would propitiate the divine favor. When such doctrines were received, the worship of God was corrupted, the grace of Christ made void, and the freedom of conscience oppressed. End of quote. Works righteousness creates these three evils. The worship of God, it's corrupted. The saving grace of Christ is voided. And Christian freedom of conscience is burdened and oppressed. Brothers and sisters, though we are God's beloved children, we are tempted often to act like slaves, to slip back into works righteousness. So we must relentlessly repent of any hint of works righteousness in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our behaviors. We must repent daily of of self-righteousness. And we must return daily to the truth that we are known by God and counted righteous in Christ alone. We are adopted sons. And so we must relentlessly repent of everything which distances us from our loving Father. This brings us to my second point. Prove that you have heard gospel preaching, that you have not heard, rather, gospel preaching in vain by continuing to receive it as from Christ and applying it rightly to your life. Paul was watching sons act as slaves, and it really bothered him. It was very painful for Paul to watch people that he loved turn away from the truth of the gospel to a false gospel, which was hurting them. Would he stand by and would he just tolerate the crisis in Galatia? Absolutely not. He would tell the hard truth in hopes of their repentance and their restoration, truth-telling, and calling them to repentance. Folks, it was the loving thing to do. It was the loving thing to do, and I think Paul anticipated them repenting. I think he knew many would. He, he called them brothers, assuming that they would repent and prove to be true brothers. And, and notice how Paul expresses both concern and hope at the same time. He said in verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Another translation could be, I fear for you that I may have labored over you in vain. Those are strong words. Wow. Imagine preaching your heart out only to see those that you love ignore you and turn to a false gospel. Wow, that would, that would be really tough, and it was for Paul. Paul feared for them. His fear was for them, for their souls. And I don't think Paul was sitting there whimpering because they wounded his ego. Uh, He feared them walking away from Jesus. He, He was shocked. He was concerned. He was scared. Eternity was at stake. But even so, notice how his words are hopeful. Paul said, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. 
as in, I might not have labored over you in vain, so repent and show that my ministry is valuable to you. Paul worked. If you know the, the, the life of Paul, he worked really, really hard. Really hard. And, and he saw amazing things happen by the power of the gospel in the world, throughout the world. But then he also watched hard-hearted people shipwreck their faith. It was hard in ministry. Paul wanted his gospel ministry in Galatia to be fruitful for the glory of God and the eternal good of the Galatians. So let me ask you a question. Does your life show in practical and tangible ways that gospel ministry is not wasted on you? Are you growing? You've heard God's law You've heard God's gospel. Is the gospel changing you? If the gospel is not changing you, not making you more like Jesus, not leading you to relentless repentance and faith, then your life is saying loud and clear, gospel preaching and discipleship is useless. The purpose of gospel preaching and discipleship is you hearing with faith and by the Spirit's work, repenting and becoming more and more like Jesus to the praise of his glorious grace. You prove gospel preaching and ministry valuable and useful when it produces fruit in you. It's so disheartening and sad when lifelong churchgoers have almost nothing to show for all the gospel preaching and ministry invested in them through the years. You know, studies show there is a systemic lack of biblical discernment among churchgoers in America evidenced by the popularity of repackaged old heresies among professing Christians. They should be mature. They should be healthy. They should be discerning. They should be oh so fruitful. But instead, so many in the church are immature, undiscerning, stagnant, and quite frankly, immoral. Instead of responding to the gospel with relentless repentance and faith and fruitfulness, so many respond with the bare minimum of religious ritual, which I think is a form of works righteousness. They assume they're all good with God because of their lifeless, mediocre religious activity. That's works righteousness. It's evil. Saints, think of all all of the gospel ministry invested in you through the years. Preachers, teachers, parents, speakers, mentors, books, articles, podcasts, prove that it wasn't all wasted on you by bearing fruit. Prove by your increasing confidence in Christ and your thankfulness for his sovereign grace that gospel preaching and discipleship is not wasted on you. If I outlive you, likely I won't for some of you, but if I do outlive you, I want to be able to say at your funeral and I want to be able to say at the end of my ministry here, whenever God chooses that to be, I have not labored in vain. I must say, you know, looking at verse 12, I'm not sure what it means. Uh, I'm not sure how a pastor deals with that, other than to be honest about it. What does Paul mean by, become as I am, for I also have become as you are? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, but I think 
He wants them to be like him in the sense that he was once a Pharisee trusting in his own obedience to the Mosaic law for righteousness, but then he was freed by Jesus from the condemnation of the law to obey the Father with thankfulness. He wants them to live in the freedom of Christ as he is living. And yet he became as the Galatians. Maybe that meant something similar to what what Paul expressed in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul said this there, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." Paul took the gospel to Galatia and I think became as they were, as much as the gospel allowed, in order to win them for Christ. So then the Galatians needed to drop the whole works righteousness thing and love each other on the grounds of the gospel, not the law. I think that's it. I think that's it. But there's certain discussion that we could have perhaps on that. I could be wrong. Well, Paul said that they did not wrong him. They received him and the gospel with love and with faith. It wasn't like Paul was passive-aggressively rebuking them because he had been wronged in some way by them. I, I don't think that's what was going on here. He wasn't brooding about this. His rebuke and his call to repentance was out of love for the truth and out of love for the Galatians. Apparently, Paul had some illness of the flesh, which he was Uh, which which, which he had when he was with them, which maybe caused him to stay in Galatia a little longer than what he had planned. And so as they cared for him in his illness, he taught them the gospel and he shepherded them. So did he have malaria? Did he have epilepsy? Did he have eye problems? We don't know. We don't know what it was. This text doesn't say. What we do know is how the Galatians received Paul in his illness. Verse 14 And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Somehow we know that Paul's condition was a trial for them. It was hard. It was uh, maybe ugly. I don't know. And, And some of you, you know all too well the trials of sickness, maybe for yourself or someone that that you love, you know. And and the Galatians, they cared for Paul without any ridicule. They loved him. And they received him as if he was a celestial messenger to them from God. They received him as Christ, Jesus, as if Christ himself had come to tell them the truth. That's how they received him. And his gospel preaching as as the authoritative word of God, the authoritative word of Christ. And Jesus told his disciples in Luke 10, 16, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So verse 14 tells us a lot about gospel preaching. Um, A whole lot about gospel preaching faithful preaching, and then how to receive faithful gospel preaching. As much as the preacher faithfully proclaims God's word, we must receive it as absolute and authoritative truth, not because of the preacher, but because of the message itself. Paul was reminding the Galatians of how they originally responded to his preaching and in effect caused them to repent of their false gospel and receive once again the true gospel. 
by hearing with faith. Gospel preaching and discipleship is not wasted on you if you continue to receive it by faith and apply it rightly to your life. Next point. Pursue your happiness in receiving the truth of God's law and gospel from truth tellers who genuinely love you. And beware of self-absorbed liars who pull you away from God by appealing to your flesh. Be suspicious of so-called friends who always tell you what you want to hear and never tell you what you need to hear. Seek out true friends who will love you enough to tell you what you need to hear. Now, where am I getting this point? Look at verses 15 through 18, and I want you to think about the deception of the false teachers in the Galatian churches. Paul says this, what then has become of your blessedness? Or or we could say, where then is your happiness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. Okay. The self-absorbed false teachers were persuading the Galatians away from their true happiness in Christ. Saints, works righteousness or legalism leads people away from their true blessedness. True blessedness is resting in Christ alone. That's where you're happiest. And when Paul first preached the gospel to the Galatians, they received him well and they loved him deeply. They would have gouged out their eyes for him, hyperbole, okay, that's kind of gross to think about, but hyperbole for how deeply they loved him, how deeply they were committed to him. Husbands, you know, maybe this is kind of after the point, but maybe you should have put that in your your wife's Valentine's Day card. I would gouge out my eyes for you. She's like, yes, he loves me. You know, that's that. try it next year. Try it on next year. See if it works for you. Then Paul drops this line, verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? America needs verse 16. America needs verse 16. Christians are not enemies or haters or bigots or intolerant because they tell the truth. They are true friends who love really deeply. The Judaizers were demonizing Paul while trying to win the Galatians for themselves. And yet it was Paul, it was Paul who truly loved the Galatians and truly just flat out told them the truth. Paul's honesty and his intense rebuke. Galatians is intense, if you haven't noticed. And and his call to repentance was out of love, not hate. It was aimed at restoring their true blessedness. False teachers weren't thinking about that. The Galatians needed to hear the gospel again and again and to get it clear in their minds and then to make the connection that Paul was not their enemy for telling them the truth, but rather their deepest friend, their their beloved brother. I love what scholar William Hendrickson said about this. He said, what Paul is telling the Galatians by means of this question 
is that he has proved himself their real friend. For the mark of such a friend is that he tells those whom he loves the truth, even though it may hurt. That's good. And and I think that's the big point that I'm trying to say here. The mark of such a friend is that he tells those whom he loves the truth. True love, folks, is inseparable from truth. Now, where am I getting this idea of self-absorbed liars? That seems like such a harsh term. Where am I getting it? I want you to see where I'm getting this. Look at verses 17 and 18. The Judaizers show great zeal and concern for the Galatians. Okay? Warming them up. But their interest in the Galatians was not for a good purpose. Their interest was actually disguised self-interest. Can you see that? Paul said, they want to shut you out that you make, my, uh, may make much of them. They, they came with a false gospel so that the Galatians would esteem and follow them instead of Paul and his true gospel. Their false gospel was shameless self-promotion at the expense of the Galatians' souls. That's not loving. They were self-absorbed liars pulling the churches away from God by appealing, and this was their tactic, by appealing to the Galatians' flesh, their, their, their carnality. This is very, very dangerous. They were, they were appealing to works righteousness, and they didn't truly love the Galatians. The Judaizers appealed to the Galatians' flesh, not to love the Galatians, but to love themselves. Now, Paul wasn't jealous. It wasn't only him who could love and care for the Galatians. It's not like he's saying, me only. But if others did care for the Galatians, they needed to do it for a good purpose, like gospel growth and maturity. Okay, if truth tellers are the ones who genuinely love, then why do so many people listen to self-absorbed liars who lead them away from God? Well, the truth is hard to hear sometimes. And sometimes lies, let's be honest, they sound pretty good. They sound right. I mean, sometimes people prefer to live in a false reality. They prefer the lies. Sin feels good, and so it's tempting to believe whatever helps you justify the sin that you're living in. If if we find people to support us in our sin, even join us in it, well, then we, we feel better about it. We can half justify it. Paul nailed it when he told Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's happening all over the place. What about Romans 1.32? Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's all over the place. Self-absorbed liars have great influence because they appeal to our sinful desires. Of course people are going to follow them. John 3 verse 19 nails it. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, if, if they come to the light... 
then their evil will be exposed and they don't want to be found out, so they look for company in the darkness. It's not hard to understand. We've done it. We've tasted it. I think what it ultimately comes down to is this. People listen to self-absorbed liars because of what Jesus said to self-absorbed liars in John 8, 47. Listen carefully. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. I think that's it. Why do some people prefer the deceptions of self-absorbed liars to the truth of truth-tellers who actually love them? Jesus said, because they don't know and belong to God. If they were truly of God, they would truly hear the words of God, and then they would respond in joyful obedience. They're not of God, saints. Let me ask you this. How then are we supposed to figure out who is telling us the truth and loving us and who is appealing to our flesh and leading us away from God? How how do you do that? Man, there's a lot of competing ideas out there. How do we begin to do this? It's actually really simple. Uh, Don't miss this. First, you must know and trust God's word so that you can discern who is telling you the truth. It's God's words, the answer. It's pretty simple. Second, people who truly love you will model for you obedience to God's commands and won't try to pull you away from God. That's how you tell who's loving you. Listen carefully to 1 John 2, 4 through 6. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And I hope that you're mature enough to recognize he's not talking about perfection. I hope that you know that. I hope that you can hear that in a a positive way that doesn't flatten you in your imperfection. Okay, you have to hear him and what he means. You have to do the commands of God. You have to be an obedient person. That's how you tell who knows God. Lots of people claim to know God, but fewer live like they know him. No follower of Jesus acts exactly like Jesus. Guilty every day. But you can tell who is genuinely trying by the Holy Spirit. You can tell they're different. 1 John 5, 2 and 3 are also worth serious thought. Listen to this. By this... We know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. All right, I'm gonna, I'll shoot it straight with you. Beware of self-absorbed liars who lure you away from God by appealing to your flesh. How can you detect those kind of people? Self-absorbed liars are the people who find God's commandments burdensome. That's just such a burden. I don't want to do that. They find a way out. They, they, they try to justify and they celebrate nonconformity to God's law. They, they aren't humbly repenting of their sins and they aren't growing in holiness and they promote themselves and they promote self-justification and, and they encourage self-righteousness and, and they seem to always toss gas on the smoldering lusts of your flesh. 
Beware of those people. Your mind must be saturated with Scripture so that you can discern the truth and true love. To know how to receive when someone is actually loving you. Last point. Those who love you the most are those who grieve your sin, deeply desire your Christ-likeness, and tell you when you're being crazy. (laughs) Verses 19 and 20. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Well, that might not sound like a love letter, but it is a love letter, a deeply passionate love letter. Paul was outspoken, no doubt. He's chucking it out there, but he was also deeply affectionate. My little children. Oh, he loved them, and they were acting crazy like little immature children. He felt labor pains for them. He suffered inside for his beloved brethren. He longed for the day like the birth of a child when his gospel labor would produce something beautiful in them, something full, something God-honoring. Paul grieved their sin and so deeply desired that Christ would be formed in them. He he wanted them to repent, and he wanted for Christ to shape their lives. He wanted them to be just like Jesus. Quite frankly, Paul was lovingly mad and baffled at how they could be so crazy. You know, sometimes it's easier to lie and remain quiet or remain quiet because then, then the person will like us. If we offend them with truth, boy, they might not like us and we don't like that. So let's be honest. At the heart of that is selfishness. We know it. It's easier. Just zip it. Might there be something selfish? Now, there's a time to zip it that shows great love. But sometimes it might not be loving. Uh, I think that's thinking about yourself and not the best interests of others, and it's very easy to do. My friends, inside of true love for someone is a desire to see Christ formed in them and a readiness to tell them the truth for their greatest happiness in God, even at great personal cost if it comes to that. I think that American society and culture have become very confused about what true love and friendship uh, look like. Narcissism has become so pervasive that people expect everyone else to applaud them no matter what. And to confront someone with truth in many cases is interpreted as a malicious attack on their personhood and worth. Personal opinion and preferences now overshadow truth, period. I mean, healthy debate and honest discourse have been Uh, have taken a big hit, I think, in America because truth-telling is so risky and so costly. Brothers and sisters, we need to be firmly anchored to God's law and gospel, and we need to be courageous to tell people the truth with gentleness, winsomeness, and selflessness. Uh, We must risk being criticized. 
like Paul, we must say, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So let's do some self-evaluation here. Do you grieve the sin of others, not because it hurts you, but because it hurts them? Do you genuinely care about Christ being formed in others? Are you willing to tell people the truth of God's law and gospel for their greatest good, even if they reject you? Are you willing to suffer for Christ in order for others to truly know Christ? Folks, I'll speak candidly. That scares me, all of that. That's scary. I am such a people pleaser, and it is not a good part of who I am. i got to shake that. That takes a lot of joy from me because I'm a people pleaser. Do we truly love people? These questions, consider these questions now. Loving affirmations to these questions compel people to the mission field. Uh, Courageous affirmations to these questions are in the blood of martyrs. Loving and courageous affirmations to these questions inspire the parents to give law and gospel to their wayward child. They they prompt the friend to plan a gospel-centered addiction intervention. They impel the college student to speak of God's truth in class at the risk of being mocked and receiving a lower grade. They cause the kind dinner invitation of the homosexual couple next door. And loving and courageous affirmations to these questions open the door for a husband and a wife to talk deeply about their marriage and their relationship with God. A few weeks ago, Christina and I sat down and had a truthful but difficult conversation about our marriage and relationship with God. It was direct, it was honest, it was even confrontational, and yet not angry or malicious, but filled with love. We, we talked about sin. We learned how to grieve one another's sins more deeply. We wanted to see Christ formed in each other, and that was being really communicated in in our time together. We spoke words of law and gospel for the good of the other, and do you know what happened? It deepened our love. It it really did. Um, It was among, for me, I don't know what she would say, probably one of the most substantial things that has happened in our marriage. Substantial. Truth-telling, it doesn't always go like that. doesn't always go like that. But it does illustrate the goodness and the power of the truth. Truth is never hateful. Truth acts in the best interest of the other. So there are three things for you to work on to better, love, to better love others. And I don't want you to hear this as, you know, just try really hard, people. You know, the Spirit can help you with these things. Trust Christ. Look to Him. He'll help form these things in you. That, that's the Spirit in which I say this. But, but here are three things that you should be working on. Okay? Paul exemplified them very beautifully for us in Galatians. Number one, learn to grieve the sin of others. Are you learning to grieve the sin of others? Number two, deepen your desire for Christ to be formed in others. You know, deepen that. Want to see Christ formed in them more than anything else. You know, work on that. 
And three, strive to tell people the truth. Telling people the truth is hard, but if you're committed to it, God will help you do it. The Spirit will help you tell the truth. The law and gospel truth, not just like, your shirt is blue. <laughs> you know, that, no. Uh, God's law and gospel for their good, their greatest good. For God's glory, their greatest good. It's loving to tell others the truth. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. Thank you so much for your word, which is a precious gift to us. I pray that we value it. We value it preached. We value it read. We value it in personal devotions. God, help us to store up your word in our hearts that we may not sin against you and that we may be ready to give a defense for why we love you, why you exist, why Jesus Christ is everything that he says he is. God, give us courage to tell the truth no matter what. Help us to count it a great blessing when others demonize us because we tell the truth. Help that to just increase our joy. Help us not to grow harsh with people and to yell and carry wicked signs that say mean and nasty things, but instead help us to invite people over to dinner or to be their friend, to sit on a park bench, to take a walk with them, and to talk about your law and your gospel for their good, to help them understand why it's loving to tell the truth and why it's loving for you, God, to reveal your truth to horrible people that hate you. That's us. Oh, God, but you sent your son, the word incarnate in human flesh, to tell us the truth. We're so grateful for Jesus and his truth. Help us to be just like him. Help us to be truth tellers for the love of others and the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.